Okay. I'm driving the bus. Okay. That's what's happening today. Okay, so welcome to On The Reg. I'm Thesis Whisperer and I'm here with my good friend Jason Downs for another episode of On The Reg where we talk about work but not in a boring way, practical, implementable productivity hacks to help you live a more balanced life. Welcome, Jason Downs. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, more importantly? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I thought we'd start off today a bit differently by popping in a lovely message that Chad left us on SpeakPipe. Hi, on the reg team. First of all, thank you very much for your great podcast and for talking about software tools and techniques you use. I'm a long-time Thesis Whisperer blog reader, greatly valuable for my current research study. So many great tips there. I was very, very excited when it was announced on the blog that podcast would be made, and since then, I never missed a single episode. As an example, you convinced me to start using Text Expander, and it's an instant win for me. It helped me so much, and it's helping me so much at my work and with my current uh, research study. Also, thank you for a deep dive into some of the topics and for recommending some great books. A World Without Email book you recommended in one of your episodes, just arrived and waiting for me to read it. There are so many other great uh, examples from both of you, and it may take me an hour to reflect on everything. Once again, thank you both for your time, dedication, and effort to make these podcast episodes for us, and also for sharing your wisdom and experience with us. Greatly appreciated, and thank you. Oh, that's so nice. Chad, thank you. I feel all warm and fuzzy. Like, I know. Um, I, I could have listened to him singing our praises for a whole hour, Chad, really. You're welcome. <laughs> just dial back in 99 more times and I, I'd just eat that up with a spoon. It's all digital now, right, SpeakPipe. So we can just like just keep putting it back into the into the uh, podcast, you know, for every episode from here on in. Just like we'll just build it straight in. <laughs> we'll start with <laughs> Well, I'm really glad. I'm glad that Chad discovered Text Expander and uh, Text Expander. If you're listening, we're open to offers. <laughs> so, given that Chad was so complimentary, I thought I'd go back and have a look at some of our stats, Jason. Actually, I tell a lie. I look at our stats fairly obsessively. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, funny, you know. I I I'm, never look at thesis whisperer download numbers ever, unless. Someone asked me about them and I'm like, oh, look at that. But I, for some reason I'm obsessed with our stats and I'd like to tell you that we finally on the bullshit episode a couple of turns ago, we finally broke through the 1,000 listens for an episode. We got to 1,024 listens oh, on that episode. That's so um, nice. And I think that was because people were sharing it, which was really lovely. So thank you if you shared it. And I, I did a bit of an analysis because there's this new tool called Rephonic that's meant to show you what your subscribers also subscribe to. So it's like a social graph of different podcasts. And it seems that our listeners listen to no other show, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> this is, we would, in my world, I would think of this as a narrow differentiation strategy. Like oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. And assuming that we've that we've managed to get get this right, it would seem that we would likely have a sustainable competitive advantage in this very narrow space. I'm buying it from you, Jason. Whatever you're selling, I'm buying. It does almost sound a little bit like bullshit, though, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> 
Sounds very management speak. How you been anyway? Marking hell? Hashtag marking hell? Hashtag marking hell. Uh, just earlier, just before we started recording, I was doing the mental calculations of how many words I have to mark in the next week or so. 150,000. Uh, what? Yeah, I know, right? It's like, oh, dang, wow. that's a lot. <laughs> and that, and let me guess, that won't be with the great love and respect. That won't be one hundred fifty thousand great words. <laughs> no, no. I I expect there to be a range of responses to our assessment. I hope you've been spruiking my latest book, Jason. Level up your essays because that might improve. Some of it. Yeah. Some of it. Text. I, I, yes, I should. <laughs> you, yes. <laughs> yes, I'm th- suddenly thinking, yes, I, yes, I should. Uh, good news, I've got another 150,000 words coming my way in week 13, so uh, I've got time between now and then to uh, to spruik your book. Maybe we can get some sales. Well, but, uh, you know, I mean, Thesis Whisperer, Junior read it. I think I, I can't remember if I said this last episode, but I had no notes. So Ooh. when on his essay, I thought it was fine, yeah. which I never do. He thought I was unwell. <laughs> <laughs> Off your game. <laughs> he said, are you feeling okay? <laughs> <laughs> I have a fairly vicious red pen, it's well known. Oh, yeah. So, so what else you been up to? So that's it, marking hell, like deep, deep in the trenches, the... Teaching trenches? Yeah, deep in the teaching trenches. But having said that, uh, you know, there's a bit of organisational change going on at the moment. That's a, that's rough. And I'll have something to say about that a little bit later. But it's time for an update, Inga Mewburn. If for people who have been sticking with us and who heard our episode on goal setting. Yes. Stepped onto the mats the other night, Inga, can fit back into my gi. Oh, Jason. I know, right? I'm not, Congratulations. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it actually kind of, it fits. It like, mm, yeah, it's, it, it could fit a bit better, but, but it actually fits now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm taking it as a win. So what else have we been up to? Oh, I've been jiu-jitsuing my little heart out, which has been great. Took number one son to a jiu-jitsu competition where we went to support a couple of colleagues who who roll who we roll with. He did really well. Like uh, four hours we spent at this jiu-jitsu competition watching our mates roll. One of them got a silver medal in his weight class and the other one did really well as well. And I was just like super impressed with the young fellow with his attention. Like he managed to s- stay kind of focused on what was happening on the mats uh, for four hours, which was for a 10-year-old, I, I was like, it's a little bit proud. Oh, look, any if they can attend to something for that long and not be on a screen of some sort, that's a total parenting win. I, I, I to be fair, I didn't take any screens with me, so like there was <laughs> there was no other choice. Right? <laughs> it was oh, this or nothing. <laughs> yeah, you wait until they get too old to do that too. But you know, you just have to trust. Yeah, okay. get the right time. Uh, and uh, I took we took the tinny out for probably its last run, I thought, before winter really sets in, took the family and Shanel and we did that. We did the race up the Yarra, pulled off, had a coffee and a toasty and raced back down again, which was lovely. But I note today it's flat calm outside and Shanel's been texting me images of the water and he's going like, what are you doing? How come you're recording the podcast? We should be out on the boat. Like, he's just, like dang, mate, give me a break. 
<laughs> sorry, Shano. I've got him this morning. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, so, not sorry. Yeah. So that's me. Um, boating, Excellent. BJJing, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Marking. Sounds good. That sounds good. I have been planning my holiday. Mm-hmm. And I will be in Melbourne next week. Ah, oh, nice. Yes. And I, so I'm driving myself down in the tears. So nice. that will be I, a first, first solo long journey from Canberra to Melbourne. I've never tried it on my own before. So that will be interesting. You, and to be fair, you're not even actually really driving, are you? You're just kind of sitting in there and just going, hey, Tesla, move me to this position. <laughs> just pretty, let, let pretty it go. much yeah yeah pretty much yeah yeah that's awesome um, so that'll be good uh we were building a new algorithm uh which is quite the process so me and two colleagues from the university of canberra this time been building an algorithm to basically assess job ads again but to to rank them according to how good they'd be for graduated psych students people doing psychology because only about seven percent of people who start psychology end up being a psychologist Mm. the rest of them have to find other careers so we were you know deep in the annotation part of the ai kind of algorithm thing and the thing with doing science is sometimes it doesn't work Mm mm-hmm but this time it worked. Yay! <laughs> Scientists listening will know the sense of in great excitement when something works. Like before I started doing this kind of research with computer scientists, I'd always done the kind of research where you do a bunch of interviews, you always find something out, right? Like you never have a failed experiment. But since I started doing AI, you know, the failed experiments, maybe nine out of ten of them fail. Oh, so you've got to get really used to going, oh, it didn't work. What did we do wrong? Adjust parameters, try again. And this time having it work on the first out like was just, oh, we were just sitting back and, you know, cracking the champagne. <laughs> so that was good. And while well, I'm on the topic of work and it sort of plugs into our topic today later on, uh, Jason, where you're going to be talking about procrastination. Mm-hmm. I signed another book contract because I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> As I declared to my husband, <laughs> I'm never writing another book. Oh, this sucks. Every time. Yep. I, I signed a contract uh, this time with Routledge uh, to write a book that I want to call Be Visible or Vanish, but the series editor and the publisher thought this is a bit too much like Publish or Perish, and I said, yes, that's the point. And yeah. they said, but it doesn't set the right tone. So at the moment it's oh. untitled on the contract, untitled. So we'll argue about that again later. And uh, <laughs> But you have to just start writing writing it, right? So I'm only writing, maybe I write two-thirds of this one. My colleague Simon Clues will write sort of one part of it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, a, it's all about presenting your research in academia and it's not just sort of standing on the stage presenting. So we talk about things like the basic 20-minute conference talk, keynotes, Uh, assessment presentations during your PhD, but we also do things like talking to other people in the tea room. Oh, yeah. Talking in corridors at conferences about your research um, and writing emails. So all the kind of hidden rules about how to not over over self-promote while self-promoting at the same time, that kind of thing. So it's an interesting book. So the first half of it is uh, scenarios in academia that Mm -hmm. you you'd encounter and the second half of the book that Simon's going to write is scenarios outside academia so it's it's things like being on an in, uh, interview on TV yeah. and uh, 
being on radio and things like that. And so each each of the segments, uh, they're about between 1,000 and 2,500 words on each scenario and that's sort of like the hidden rules that no one talks about and, you know, success strategies and how to know you've got it wrong and all those kind of things. So they're kind of like blog posts, I suppose. But damn it, Jason, getting started on this book has just been gruelling and you'll be able to maybe diagnose what's going wrong with me. Like it's like it's so easy to write mm. that I don't want to write it. Oh, I've, so, I've got I views. sit down and I'm like I'm bored already. Oh. And I'm not actually bored. Do you know what I mean? And like how do I make this interesting? I feel like I'm just when I teach this stuff, it's sort of like pressing play on my chest and I just go bleh, 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 bleh. Yeah. And so I've taught it for years, maybe 15 years. So it feels like just being back in the classroom and regurgitating and just this whole wave of I cannot be fucked <laughs> just rises up. Oh. So, so this seems like a good transition <clears throat> to our work problems mm. because perhaps you could help me with my procrastination problem with this book. Jason, because you're going to do the deepest of deep dives <laughs> on procrastination. How many pages of show notes? Like you didn't put them into the last minute. I went to get a coffee and then I opened it up and it was like, how have we got 117 pages now? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's like 15 pages of show notes here around procrastination. And I promise everybody that I'm not going to, to kind of read each one, right? Like it's, there's a lot here and I am going to give you the cliff notes. So in the show notes, we call these things a work problem. And then, you know, how do we come around this? I've titled it, I'm onto it. And I love that. I love that. <laughs> Uh, this came out of a talk that I gave to the PhD Student Society at Westminster University. But, and I, I mentioned them, I think, last recording. By the way, my favourite PhD Student Society ever of all time, such a good bunch. And I gave them a kind of a really short presentation on, on procrastination and, and how you can use procrastination for fun and profit. And but subsequently to that, I've been reflecting more deeply on my use, on my personal use of procrastination as an actual tool and thought it would be good to kind of go quite deep on that and see what the research has to say on it. And it turns out that there's there's 40 years of research on procrastination. Really? <laughs> yeah. This is a thing, hence 15, notes of sh- uh, 15 pages of show notes. Uh, and just as an indication, like Google, bless you, I, I, I started this exercise off with what is procrastination in Google and got 57 million hits back wow. on that. And I'm like, okay then, all right, good. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of the the kind of, uh, I can't think of the name of that. What's that news platform that starts with Buzz? Uh, yeah, I know the one you're talking about, yeah, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed, right. So there's plenty of lists of 10 things that you should do to stop procrastination and, you know, are you a procrastinator, self-diagnose yourself here. There's like there was heaps of that sort of crap, right? But one that I did find that I really liked, which kind of provided a, a nice definition, was from a 2019 New York Times article where they kind of they broke the definition of procrastination down and I thought this was a nice one. Where, where they say that entomo- entomologically procrastination is derived from the Latin verb procrastinare, to put off until tomorrow. 
but it's more than just voluntarily delaying. Procrastination is also derived from the ancient Greek word akrasia, which is doing something against our better judgment. That's actually beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've got, I mean that's perfect, isn't it? Yeah. We yeah. know we shouldn't be doing it, but we still do it, right? And so that self-awareness is key, is a key part of why procrastination makes us feel so, so rotten. When we procrastinate, we're not only aware that we're avoiding the task, but also that doing it is probably a bad idea, yet we do it anyway. How many times have you, Linga, I'm asking you to self, self-identify <laughs> here. How many times have you procrastinated and just like felt awful about it? Every damn day. Yeah. Every day I will procrastinate about something or other. Every day. Every day. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. For how, there's how always long? a task. Oh, look, there's always a task that I know I should do and I just don't want to. And it, it's almost like uh, it's almost compulsive, you know. The, the only way that I end up being a productive person is to have multiple tasks going at the same time. So I can always switch to another one to avoid the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but it's pretty much, you know, it's deadlines that drive me. Ah, I think I, I, think, I, I'm not. A, I don't let it slip past the deadline, though. I do. I do know a lot of people who do go past the deadline. It just sails past, and I'm not that person. Yeah, yeah. But I uh, procrastinate every day. Yeah. I think you'll find yourself in this research. Uh, you'll you'll kind of go, "Yep, that's me." Because I tell you what, when I read it, I'm like, "Oh, damn! Oh, oh, oh!" <laughs> I feel seen here. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, my favorite one was when good things don't come to those who wait, which is a 2013 article. And I think it was from European psychology and it was just brilliantly written. Uh, it was clear. Uh, it wasn't kind of couched in jargon. And I, I was a little bit worried that it might kind of get a little, a little bit psychological, if you know what I mean, in terms of its language, but it was just. It was just a lovely article to read, and well, I'll put the link in the. Or we'll put the link in the show notes, and we can go from there. Most of the research has developed in kind of isolation from one another. That that there's not a consistent definition of procrastination. So even though we've got four decades of this stuff, we haven't. We we kind of we grab the elephant by each of its different legs, if you like, uh, in terms of the research. But some of the so, things. Hang on a minute. So are they just. Let, let me let me dwell on that. The irony of that is beautiful. There hasn't been some sort of international conference on procrastination or some sort of working party on the definition. They've procrastinated about getting together in order to define. <laughs> is this possible that they just haven't got around to it? No. Uh, in one of the later <laughs> articles, they, they talk about the problem of coming up with a clinical definition of procrastination, ah, which okay. might mean that you end up stigmatising the activity. Oh. Uh, right. And so if they do come up with a clinical definition of this, people might start to use that in various different ways. And, and, mm. and why this is important is because 25% of the general population procrastinate. Like this is a... Oh. Yeah. So this, right. and like these are done with studies of like huge cohorts, 24,000 people to... You mean there's some people who don't? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, most, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, we're special. <laughs> oh, 
Look, there's a lot of argument in the research about how you design these studies. Much of it depends on self-reporting. So mm. you might argue that, you know, people might not be as entirely honest with themselves or with the researchers as what they possibly could be about their procrastination habit. But if you, if you kind of deep dive into this population a little bit more, it turns out that the general population uh, of 25% that it, it kind of ramps right up. It's as high as 70% for university students, 70% of university I, Again, students. I'm probably I'm surprised that it's 30% that are not doing <laughs> That'd be the engineering respect. students, right? I uh, mean, deep respect. No, deep respect. Yeah. 50% of students, presumably in the, in the university setting, report consistently and problematically procrastinating. Oh, that's me. That's me. Oh, okay. Men procrastinate slightly more than women. But mm. as we get older, this is a good thing. As we get older, we tend to procrastinate less. Uh, and the procrastination has been shown to have negative impacts or negative correlations with things like your health, financial well-being, poor academic performance. I mean, uh, you know, you don't have to think too hard about students who kind of own up to procrastination and then hand in assignments at the very last minute and they're not as good as they could be. Some of the some of the research studies looked at things like people who procrastinate doing their retirement planning. And oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like not me. Oh no, my my retirement <laughs> is planned. But, you know, because they put it off, they don't invest early enough and so they have negative uh, outcomes later in life. Uh, financially. Right. There has been more recently a stream of research that wants to separate out procrastinators from what they, the, the term they use is passive procrastination. So this is kind of what you would think of as as the traditional procrastinator, someone who puts it off and, you know, suffers the negative consequences, you know, all the bad kind of procrastination versus yeah. active procrastinators. Uh, right. Yeah, so active procrastinators are people who are deadline-driven and oh. who use a strategic uh, uh, oh, kind of outlook on the way in which that they use their time. So they know that they've got to do these things, but they play this kind of mental game of if I delay starting this particular activity, will that maybe give me more information that will allow me to make better decisions. They're always weighing the consequences off of delaying starting something versus the negative consequences of having to do it at the last minute. That is literature review procrastination in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, for those listeners who aren't aware, the literature review being basically what Jason's doing here, reading a whole lot of stuff, and it can be excruciating to decide to start to write a literature review because you just want to do more reading. So it's a it feels very good to procrastinate around a literature review. It feels virtuous. Yeah, well, you're gathering more information, right? So that makes yeah. it, it makes it easier for you to uh, be able to synthesize that information, and particularly when you've got something that's going to be public at the end of it, a research paper or a thesis or or something, it feels like you're not actually procrastinating. <laughs> that, that, yeah, you know, that, it feels it feels just and right. Yeah, in the natural order of things. Yeah, the author proposes that that even though there's been this split between this active and passive procrastination, that this is a false split, and that really what we're talking about when we talk about active procrastination is what she termed as strategic delay. 
So mm. actually making the decisions to delay activity in a particular area, uh, assuming uh, and hoping that the negative consequences will be outweighed by the positive consequences of, of delaying some action. She then breaks this down into seven aspects uh, that kind of split these things out. These seven aspects are, are quite specific, and I, and I, but I like them. So the first one is an overt or covert act is delayed. The second is the start or completion of this act is intended. The third is that the act is necessary or of personal importance. Mm. The fourth is the delay is voluntary and not imposed upon oneself by external matters. The fifth is the delay is unnecessary or irrational. The, uh, where am I up to? Sixth, the delay is achieved despite being aware of its potential negative consequences. And the last one is the delay is accompanied by subjective discomfort. But it's in the last four, really, where this kind of split between procrastination and strategic delay come through. And that's in the that's in the kind of recognition that the delay is unnecessary or irrational, that you're aware of its potential negative consequences and that you're going to suffer some some discomfort out of that. Yeah, that, I mean, that that's interesting because I think I'm strategic delay only some of the time, but most of the time it's irrational. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, see, oh, I would have thought that you would have been strategic de- delay most of the time. See, this, I, I love the way that you always think that I do things a lot better than I do, Jason. Like, I appreciate your, your friendship and <laughs> the way that it colours, um, that you think that I'm somehow better at things and I, I like it most of the time. I'm struggling like a duck, like oh. a leaks going underwater and I'm serenely gliding across the lake. But underneath, it's all turmoil, Jason. Oh. Self-doubt, well, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, some some of the research, not in this particular paper, but some of the research that I read, uh, that one of the benefits of active procrastination might be that people have to positively engage in impression management. So maybe that's what you're doing. You're actively <laughs> procrastinating, but then engaging in, like, very successfully <laughs> impression management, giving the impression that you're doing you're just gliding across the lake when, in fact, it's... No, it's- no, I mean, I, I find myself a very curious creature in this respect because, like, I, I I look at, I mean, objectively I, I read a lot and produce a lot. Like, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. But but the, the process of doing that is, like, it's torture, actually. But I try to be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I, I, mm. Did someone say th- <laughs> therapy? I, I may resemble that remark. I have been in therapy quite a lot, quite a lot. This article breaks breaks procrastination down into four perspectives, which I thought were really good. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of race over these really, really quickly. They are the differential psychology perspective, the motivational and volitional psychology perspective, and the clinical psychology perspective and the situational perspective. So as you can imagine, this is a psychological journal, so um, it makes sense that they pull these psychological perspectives. But in terms of the differential psychology perspective, where they kind of frame procrastination as a personality trait, they kind of, they, they say in this perspective that it's, uh, reflective 
of people with decreased conscientiousness and increased neuroticism. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, a, a tendency for increased perfectionism. Low- I may resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> Low self-esteem. Decre- I'm starting to feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> Low self-esteem, decreased optimism and differentiated identity aspects around self-concept, self-presentation, ego identity, those sorts of things. And I, and what I liked about this is that it was associated with self-handicapping as a strategy to preserve one's self-esteem, which I thought was which I thought was really interesting. So, and this goes to the talk that I gave to the PhD student society at Westminster University. Hello, we love you. That procrastination is not a time management problem; it's a stress response problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out that in the, there's a, there's a few studies that seem to indicate that there is no correlation at all between how smart you are and your proclivity to procrastination. It's a little bit. Of oh, that. look, I I absolutely would not question that. The, the smartest <laughs> PhD, the, the smartest PhD students I've met are the worst procrastinators. Like there is no correlation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, oh, but I'm really interested that it's a stress response because that that resonates with me. Yeah, right. Well, I asked the audience in that talk. I said uh, in the chat, just kind of give me a whole bunch of like, tell me how you feel when you procrastinate. Maybe this is a good opportunity for you to engage in that little activity as well. <laughs> so, thinking about your procrastination, yes, and thinking about your emotions in the act of while you're procrastination, procrastinating, yes. Yes. What words would you use to describe your emotional state? Yeah, it's pretty unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty torn. Like, yeah, it's pretty, oh, gosh. I have different flavours of it, yeah. if, if I'm honest. Like sometimes it's a, like I recognise what I'm doing right now and I'm I'm just giving myself a break about it turning to another task and I'm making some sort of justification for why I'm doing that. Like I'll do this other thing now because reasons. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm kind of okay with that, but other times like it's it's it, like I'm beating myself up, I'm a lot of negative self-talk, you know, yeah. why can't you do this, come on, you have to, so-and-so will be really disappointed, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I've got two modes. One mode is sort of quite accepting and just um, rationalising and the other mode is just an orgy of uh, <laughs> self-destruction. Yeah, well, the 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 good folk at uh, Westminster talked about anxiety, stress, anxiousness, yeah. like, yeah. you know, lots of really kind of negative emotions uh, and feelings that come out of uh, engaging in procrastination. Yeah, I hate those feelings. I, like, yeah. Yeah. I hate those feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have them a lot. Oh man. Yeah. So I even do my job. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, from the from the differential psychology perspective, you know, this is these these uh, this is normal, right? Like you, you're. Well, that's a relief. I like to be told I'm normal. Okay. Yeah, and so thinking about that, then you can't go to more getting things done tutorials or you know. How do I time manage myself using Outlook? Or like you, that's not going to help here because it's it's tackling the wrong end of the wrong end of the problem from a from that particular perspective point of view. Yeah, it's really interesting because we're such task managers, you know. Like sometimes I'll pick up a task, you know, digitally or on paper, or whatever, and it feels hot to me. 
Like I think to myself, oh, this is a hot one. Like I know myself and I know I won't want to do it. Yeah, yeah. And that like the how I, I avoid, actively avoid putting those tasks into my system. So I've a, I have some task avoidance just because I know that's just going to drive me up up the wall. Yeah. So probably there's a bunch of things I don't do just because I know they're real triggers. But. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, you know, both you and I, I think, probably take on more than time allows for. And so coming to grips with that, I think the time management aspect of this is one way to tackle this in that you just need to get a reasonable workload on your plate. And we've talked about this previously in the in the podcast, I think, but it's not the only way to tackle this stuff. So mm. I think that and this article talks about these four different perspectives. You can't take procrastination as being just one of these pers- perspectives that they overlap. Uh, and just take looking at it through one particular lens is not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll rip through the next ones. The next one is motivational and volitional psychology perspective, that procrastination incorporates a failure in motivation and or volition, leading to this it, what they call the intention-action gap. So you want to do something, but you don't <laughs> actually do it, right? <laughs> so that's lovely. <laughs> I need a T-shirt with that on it. <laughs> well, Hmm. <laughs> a failure of motivation and or volition leading to the intention action gap. Yeah. Uh, procrastination is less likely in people who are intrinsically motivated, self-determined, engaged in flow-inducing activities, uh, and those who engage in a mastery approach to goal orientation have an Ooh, internal yeah, <laughs> have an internal <laughs> locus of control and increased self-efficacy. But procrastination can be traced back to decreased self-regulation, decreased self-control, decreased action control, and then some other kind of little elements around time management, time orientation, learning strategies. Look, there's an equation called the, uh, and I didn't actually. (laughs) Of course there is. Of course there is. (laughs) I didn't actually write down the name of the equation, which uh, is killing me now. It's called the temporal something, 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 something. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. But this equation is composed of four major bits, expectancy, value, uh, delay and impulsiveness. So, so you can what you can do an equation that expresses exactly how much you're going to procrastinate about a given task. Yep, pretty can much. We make this into a quiz. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I know, right? We love the people who do this sort of stuff. I uh, know. Thank you, psychologists. Yeah. It's amazing. Oh man, there are so many statistics. I just like. I know they're not your favourite, are they? No, no. <laughs> Thank you for going there for us, Jason. I appreciate it. Okay. Motivation increases as the expectancy of an outcome and the size or value of the outcome increases. So the more that you want something to happen, the more you'll be motivated by it? Yep, and the more it's worth, the size or the value of the outcome increases. I don't know. That's not really really doing it for me because I can be unmotivated about things that really, really matter, like health, you know. Ah, yeah, but it's ah, but we'll come back to this, right? Because motivation decreases as the delay before this outcome and the impulsiveness increases. So, according to this theory, procrastination is more likely to occur if the outcome of an unpleasant activity offers rewards in the distant future. Right. Right. So, delayed gratification. Correct. So, this health. This, this idea, it's an important thing, the, the rewards of health 
engaging in healthy activities. And I'm just, I'm suddenly thinking back to, I think it was like our first episode, maybe, or even our second episode, the urgent, important matrix. Remember the, oh, me- yes, yeah, the yeah, merely yeah. urgent? The merely urgent. The yeah, merely urgent. urgent. The risk that we both of us face here, and I'm going to put you and I in the active procrastinator box at the moment. <laughs> right. Is that we, we might be lying on our deathbed and suddenly go, you know what I should do? Start training for that marathon. <laughs> <laughs> because the deadline, right? <laughs> Has that, now appeared. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> it cannot be shifted. You know, you can obviously see parallels here about being able to begin with the end in mind, as our good friend Stephen mm. Covey would say. Start kind of visualising what the outcomes might be and and we could spin out into a whole bunch of sports psychology and all that sort of stuff around that. Clinical psychology perspective, procrastination is linked to depression, anxiety, stress, stresses, can be a form of a revenge or rebellion. Yeah, that's what my dietician says about eating. Oh, really? Like, yeah, no, she says like the more that you deny yourself carbs, the more that, you know, given if your willpower is sort of diminished towards the end of the day, the more that you will rebel against yourself, right? So so you're, you're going to binge, is that what you're saying? Like at the end of yeah, the day? Yeah, well, that, that's, she's, she said you're setting yourself up for yeah. sort of taking revenge on yourself or rebelling against yourself. So she's like rebelling's just something you do. Like you may not think that you're a rebel but everyone has it in them. You know, and yeah, so yeah. you're rebelling against yourself, which is really dumb, actually. And she's <laughs> quite right. Like I eat overall less if I don't go into a denial mode. Yeah. If I'm like, I can eat whatever I want when I want. That's her strategy. You just you can eat whatever you like, which is so weird. <laughs> to give give yourself absolute and utter permission. Well, hang on. But then you've got to ask yourself, like, is each bite that I'm taking now better than the last one or not? Like it, she puts you really in the moment rather than in any sort of delayed, I've got to not eat this because then I'll be thin in six months' time. She's like, what's happening oh. right now? Is this bite more pleasurable than next? And when it stops being pleasurable, just stop. And it's amazing. Like I, it's amazing how it's changed my eating habits. I'm still on a long journey about it. But yeah. it, when you just give yourself permission, suddenly the need to rebel kind of goes away. It's weird. Oh, man. So hang on. Dunkin' Donuts, kind of Krispy Kreme, sugar-glazed yeah, like pink stuff, do. covered anything in chocolate chip, mint ice cream. Yeah, anything. And then it's really weird when you when you go into that mode, you're like, anything is possible, how much you just don't want to eat. Huh. Like, sometimes I, like sometimes I want to eat that sort of stuff, but actually a lot less than I thought. Right. It's, it's, it's very strange. Oh. I'm still getting my head around it. Maybe we need a... <laughs> Academic diet <laughs> episode. Uh, we probably do. The research. I, I, I know that a lot of listeners are like everyone's struggling with this at the moment because especially in Australia we're, we're sort of coming out of pandemic mode sort of kind of like, yeah. you know, we've got used to the fact that sometimes we just have to lock ourselves in the house for five days and then it passes over and we're all out again. So yeah. we've sort of got used to that, like, unlike other places that are just deep in the shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The downside is, of course, we're heading into winter, right? So uh, I yeah. know, right? Who wants to go for a nine-kilometre walk every day when that's going on uh, in yeah, Canberra? Well, yeah. Well, no, actually, it's really sunny and cold here. This is the thing about Canberra. It's fucking freezing. Like yesterday I put something <laughs> on Instagram that was literally the ice on the on my sun lounger's cover was mm. covered in ice and it was actually crunchy. I pressed it with my finger and it was crunchy. Oh. But it was sunny. It's beautiful and sunny. It's alpine. Yeah. 
Nice. Yeah. We're so off topic. Yeah. Shall I shall I bring <laughs> us shall I bring us back and link it to earlier where we talked about the clinical definition? So I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is problematic, right? In that we can stigmatize once you get a clinical definition of procrastination. Mm. But an early preliminary uh, definition that was put forward in this article. So remembering this is 2013. And I think that this definition was a 2011 definition. So it, I'm not sure I, I didn't go down this path any further to find out whether or not it had been defined from a clinical perspective, but that procrastination can be classified as clinically relevant if its duration is more than six months, its mm. intensity is more than half of the day, and that mm. there are at least five physical or psychological complaints. I love how they try and put numbers around it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, you know, four is not enough, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that vital one point difference. But that, that kind of gave me, when I looked at that, that gave me a little bit of, uh, a little bit of comfort because I'm, you know, I can procrastinate. Although I tend to, I, I tend to make really clear choices about that procrastination. You know, I'm I'm constantly doing that calculus about can I delay this? Should I delay this? What are the consequences if I do that? Sometimes I get that right. Sometimes I get it wrong. But uh, more than six months? Yep, totally. Uh, its intensity is more than half of the day? Rarely for me. Yeah, I would say I'm rarely. I mean, I made it sound really terrible that I do. I have little bouts of it. It just flares up for five minutes at a time, literally yeah. 50% of the day. But yeah, it's at the start of something when, I, or when I've got to start a task or at the start of a time block or something, I just get, you know, the urge to procrastinate. Yeah. It comes over me. Yeah. 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 So the last mm. one is the obviously the, well, not obviously, but, you know, we see it a lot, is all of this stuff is situational and that context matters. This is the one that's covered probably the least in my notes uh, because I was like, yeah, yeah, of course this makes sense. So I didn't actually take as many notes. But context matters in terms of the task difficulty. If you perceive it to be difficult, then, you know, you're probably less likely to want to start it. Task attractiveness, thinking about in the context of students, the plausibility of the assignment, you know, mm. what, are you, what you're doing, like is it relevant, I guess. Your mm. autonomy over the process and teachers' characteristics. It's really interesting watching Thesis Whisperer Junior studying psychology, which he seems to be sticking with now. Their assignments are designed with all this stuff in mind. Like, ah. Yeah, so plausibility of the assignment. They, the first essay he had to write was about how students think about their learning. Yep. So it was like a, a task on metacognition, I suppose. It was incredibly relevant because it's like, so think about yourself, student. Yeah, <laughs> and he was right into it. He's like, "Oh, I do that, and I don't do that." And I, I thought that was very clever. So they've clearly read their own research and gone, "We'll make these assignments plausible." Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I wonder if there's like a group of students that come out at the other end of that assignment, blithely unaware that that was the case, right? <laughs> <laughs> that they're thinking about, oh, other students <laughs> behave in these ways. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> ah, dang. Ultimately, this this article suggests that if you're going to tackle this, thinking about this through one particular lens is probably not helpful. There's a lot of overlap between these various different perspectives. And that ultimately, if you're going to tackle it, that probably each individual case or each individual has their own individual characteristics around procrastination. And so that you and I probably require different approaches or different interventions 
around procrastination to help us to get stuff on. True. I, I mean, as a person who's picked up PhD students in the last stages, who've like every other supervisor's abandoned, and they're kind of like, as we call them in the trade, roadkill students. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Terrible no. term. It is. That's what we call them. Okay. Um, you know, you pick them up off the side of the road and you try and breathe life back into them, you know. So mm. I'm like, I, I always have one on the go, basically. Yep. I've always got someone like that. Yeah, and I would say that each one of them has suffered from procrastination in some way, but they've all needed a very different approach. To There's not a one-size-fits-all that's yeah. going to work. And you've got to work with them for a couple of months before you work out what exactly will trigger them. So one of them was interesting because, like, she would just be triggered by anger. So mm. I'd be like, <laughs> you know, so people, you know, like prove people wrong. She's like, yeah, okay, I will. <laughs> I quite like her. <laughs> yeah, I think she was great. I mean, she got there in the end, you know. But, yeah, it was just other ones where you've just got to sort of sit down with the calendar and just patiently explain to them that they can't overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah. And that they need to be realistic with themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and make a realistic plan and that seems to calm them enough that they feel they can do the work because they're sort of, you know, so that, that you do need a different strategy each time, people. I've learned a lot from those students about how to manage myself. Yep. Because I find myself t- telling them things and I think, oh, um, you should probably, you know, eat your own cooking, Mewburn. Mm. You know? Yeah, I think uh, uh, I, you know, reflecting deeply on on my own approach to procrastination around this, particularly over the last week, I will, I, you know, I've got some strategies and we'll talk about these a little bit later, but I've got some strategies I think in my own life that I'll start to implement a little bit more, recognising that other people probably can't identify my particular flavour of procrastination and mm. that they might be misidentifying it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, that's a powerful insight, I think. Yeah, and so I just need to help them along a little bit so that they can come yeah, up. Yeah, like explain yourself a bit. Yeah, I get you. They can get on our um, our particular bus, Inga, rather than their <laughs> own bus. Now, speaking of the bus, mm. uh, we're now nearly at an hour. Yep. And I've got to say, this is good stuff. Yeah. And I know you have four articles. And can I beg of you that we just make four episodes? Because there's heaps to talk about. Well, uh, uh, thank you for managing me. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but we could also. Well, we've just got a lot of other good stuff here in terms of, you know, what we've been reading and listening to and stuff. Like, yeah. It'd be good to sort of vary it up. Otherwise, we'll just have like two hours. On, and I'm not sure where I could cut it. Like, I'm just. Yeah. I'm sure I can take 10 minutes out somewhere in there. But it gets harder and harder for me the longer it gets. Oh, okay. All right. No worries. We're ahead of ourselves, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Okay. We are. I I think it's really good. Like I think, you know, and then you can come back and have a look at those. You might make it into one more episode or maybe it's two or maybe it's three. Yeah. All right. I think there's definitely something around organisations because, like, working inside an organisation, working with other procrastinators, like, I think that would be a good thing to talk about. Yeah, the the organisation. That's academia. Well, not only academia, more broadly in terms of organisations, I thought that this would be really, really relevant and ties back to what it is that we're talking about and kind of what are the practical, implementable things that you can do. And that particular article talks about what management could do. And I must admit there, there were a few times where I went with their suggestions but and there was a double uh in there at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that it, it I think that there's stuff in here for people who are outside of academia as well, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's tie it up there. Let's tie it up there. 
All right. You've convinced me. All right. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was a lot on procrastination uh, and very, very specific. And at the risk of taking over the bus driving, Ingham, you burn. What have you been reading yes, while I've been reading all about procrastination? <laughs> Thank you for grabbing the wheel. <laughs> Uh, I've got two articles that are like I've been reading books, you know. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That. Yeah, on Twitter, in Twitter, I keep sending them to you. I'm sorry about that. It's a bit triggering. Oh my um, god! And you do it at night. <laughs> Why do you do it at night? You play. Like, well, sometimes I'm sitting on the couch. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just winding down from the day. I'm just I'm looking forward to bed, and then I get this. This is my way of winding down. <laughs> Oh, look, you're further behind now, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. It's all, it's the CPAP machine. Uh, I'm I'm breathing. I'm breathing in the night. Suddenly I've got capacity to think about things. I've got two articles, one of which you've read, which is called Bullying Up, Academic Incivility Exerts Heavy Toll on Dean. And this is an article by John Ross and it's in the Times Higher Ed, but it's actually based on research by Troy Heffernan. Hi, Troy. Hi, Troy. I know him from Latrobe, good guy, Professor Lynn Bassetti of the University of British Columbia. And what they're doing is talking about the tactics that academic staff use to bully management. Mm. So when we talk about bullying in academia, we often assume that it's sort of top down, so management to staff. But this talks about staff to management, so sort of bottom-up bullying. And they describe this as behaviour that does not technically breach codes of conduct. So it's things like gossiping, (laughs) muttering in (laughs) meetings or deliberately misinterpreting instructions. (laughs) Does this uh, sound familiar? (laughs) Oh, my Lord. It would never occur at RMIT, of course. I've heard heard others in other institutions talk of of such things. Yes. Totally. And ANU is way too classy for any of that, oh, yeah. especially uh, gossip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the deans, uh, the deans who or the managers who are being kind of um, confronted with this behaviour, if they confront the perpetrators, they risk sparking grievance replaint, complaints or rows yeah. of academic freedom. And if they then try and appeal upwards, so if they try and sort of manage it downwards, they get told, oh, it's my academic freedom. Mm. But when they try and complain to their provost or their vice chancellors, then they can appear weak and incompetent. Mm. So they're kind of like meat in the sandwich. Yes. And this paper claims that the 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 most prevalent type of tormentor were established professors who knew the system and enlisted awed junior colleagues as allies. And many of these people resented restructuring obligations foisted on them from further up the hierarchy. So basically the, the, they resented the deans for having to do the restructures and the deans weren't really responsible for the restructures, mm. they just had to carry it out. Mm. And so the deans are really the meat in the sandwich, like the classic middle management problem. And, I mean, I have to say as a long-time dean handler, I've been dean adjacent uh, for the last 16 or 17 years. <coughs> I'm on my, how many deans have I had now? One, two, three, four, five. I'm on my seventh dean. Yeah. Right. And I do have this thing that I call Dean and anxiety complex. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> is this clinical? Is dean, this a clinical definition? I, I, don't, I don't know, but where the deans are confronted, like I've just seen it so often, they've been confronted with something that they 
they know they have to do that's going to be politically unpopular. And they just, like, they get it. I've seen the toll that it takes on these people that they know they have to carry out some of the things that they have to do. Yeah. And also that unprofessional behaviour, gosh, I mean, I've got, I get a little bit of splash of that occasionally just by being dean adjacent. Like sometimes I'm the co-author on a paper that suggests a major change Mm. or something like that. So the last major change I was involved with was introducing supervisor professional development because we're like, hey, our PhD students take a long time to complete. Maybe we should teach supervisors a few strategies to help them. And this created instant resentment. Amongst the established professorial class, and boy, Mm. have they got a vicious tongue in their emails. One of my favourites, it starts off addressing (laughs) is, Dear dear Autonaton, (laughs) (laughs) or are you an apparatchik of the deeply Marxist conspiracy at the heart of academia? Like, like I'm not kidding. That I've got it stuck on my corkboard because I love it so much. I was about like to say you, you've either oh. internalized that, right? Like to such a that, such a point that you can just off the top of your head just like repeat it, or it's within eyeshot. And I can't. Oh, it's within eyeshot. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I often show it to people just because it's so amusing. But for me, it's amusing, right? Like, but if you're the dean and you're getting it all the time, and imagine yeah. it's, it's. I can see how it wears people down, and I, I just suppose. I mean, look, no one's right and no one's wrong in all these. Like change is hard and especially right now a lot of the things that are going on are just deeply shitty. But I would think that our like our professorial colleagues, the professor um, who've been around and seen it all, would, would show a little bit more self-restraint I think in these times and just uh, like understand that the dean is a human as well and probably does want to do half the things that they're doing so i think disagreeing with the decision is one thing and i like i disagree with decisions heartily and often but being an asshole about it is something else yeah yeah what do you reckon yeah yeah like uh i it's sparked a lot of talk on twitter though i have to say like people were like screw you deans because this this article it actually spread quite wide because i uh, saw it on linkedin and it's made it to the Sydney Morning Herald. I try and pick my battles and which ones I want to get engaged in and which ones I don't want to get engaged in. And that point about professors recruiting the what, – what, what did you say? Pro- professors recruiting awed. awed. Yeah, yeah, junior colleagues who are in awe of them basically. Yeah, like that kind of really spoke to me because I was thinking about – my time in the university sector and, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know right at the start and, and you know, you, you do look up to the professors because clearly they're smarter than you and, and they, know, they know things. So, it, you know, you might as well take on board what they say because it's probably right, right? Well, wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it turns <laughs> out. <laughs> and you just need, you, you need to develop a little bit of organisational kind of nous to, and experience, I mean, this stuff only comes with experience, to be able to identify and then be able to deal with that. And one of the things that's always impressed me about deans, on the outside at least, is what, what appears to be their unfailing resilience because often, you know, you, you, that those corridor conversations or you know, something gets announced and then there's this little grouping of people at the favourite coffee shop or, you know, it can be, it can be quite skating. And, and, and you know, I've, I've witnessed where white anting and kind of this low-level low level kind of negative engagement 
over a long period of time because, oh, man, if nothing they can bloody hang on to something, right, some people, is, you know, it would be a terrible position to be in, I think. And and I think you're absolutely right. The deans are stuck in the middle uh, around this. They're, they're, they are told that that this restructure is going to occur or something has to occur, you know, that a financial position has changed. They can't do anything about that. Let's be clear, right? The pandemic means we don't have as many resources. And I saw uh, just, I think it was yesterday, day before, uh, Vice-Chancellor, ANU Vice-Chancellor came out and kind of reported the financial position of ANU as well. Essentially, that was a grueling meeting, yeah. I I bet. (laughs) Um, Essentially saying that while the position was better than what had originally been forecast. It was still terrible, right? So so you, in the face of those kinds of externalities, you can't – the deans have to make some hard decisions and, it's, and, and they have to implement because that's their, that's their job. And the saddest thing I've seen happen to them is that formerly they were one of us usually. You know, usually they're promoted from within, not always, but often – so they've been one of the troops and suddenly they're the boss and uh, they lose their friends. Yeah. People don't want to be seen with them. There's a sort of social death involved with it that I've seen, I've observed happening. And they've often been promoted because they've been the sort of people that people like and respect and think, oh, well, they'll do a good job and they won't hurt us. Yeah. That, I mean, they're just in a double bind then. And yeah. that's often why people import deans, right, because then they don't have those social attachments and so on. So those people come in and they never make any friends with anyone. Yeah. And I, so I always make it a policy to be super friendly to those people and, and just because on a human level I just think it's a shit job and I've been asked to do the job not only in my own institution but I'm headhunted regularly, Yeah. right? Like I'll get a call once, twice a year sometimes three times a year for the next Dean HDR job that's going somewhere yeah. just because, you know, I've got a lot of experience and Dean adjacent and I've just, I just absolutely blanket no, there's just no way I'd do the job. <laughs> You've got a text expander snippet, right? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I need, I do no. need one. Hey, hey, did you see my text expander stats this month? Were they insane or what? Awesome. They're, I'm like. 33 hours. Yeah. That is nuts. Yeah. Uh, like we predicted this, right? Like early on, it was like if you engage with this stuff, that's you know that's three months worth of holidays at the end of the year. Oh, amazing. Probably won't work out that way, but it's pretty amazing. Speaking of holidays, we'll probably need it because the second one mm. uh, article I want to talk about is called "Teaching and Decision Fatigue." It's by John Warner, uh, and it's not research exactly. It's an opinion piece in the Inside Higher Ed site. But I thought it was interesting. It's just got like it's an academic like us, just basically musing on his life and developed a little theory about that I thought was quite interesting. So he's developing a theory that a semester is an inevitable process of being worn down <laughs> until at the end there is an exhausted collapse at the finish line. And he talks about how this always happens and, like, he does all these things and he thinks he can stop it, but he finds that teaching is uniquely draining mm. and, that it, and that it's progressive over time. And he thinks that it's got something to do with, the idea of decision fatigue. So research shows us, and I talked about my dietitian earlier in the show, if we don't cut it out, research shows us that we have a limited ability to make decisions throughout a day and that we basically use up our decision-making energy. So, for instance, Steve Jobs dressed in a black skivvy mm. every day so he didn't have to make a decision about what to wear, mm. right? 
And a lot of people do this, especially in Silicon Valley, it seems to be a thing, mm. that they wear the same outfit every day because they've got only so much decision-making energy, they're decision-makers in their businesses or whatever, and they don't want to use it up. Yep. And I can use up a lot of decision-making energy about what's <laughs> <laughs> We had to go. We had to go and pitch um, our product to an investor the other day. I'm like, there is no female paradigm for how to dress for this moment. Ooh. Like, so I was just like, okay, I'm wearing a, an aggressively patterned skirt, and uh, that's what I'm going with. And so I turn up to the cafe, and my colleague Will Grant's there, looking effortlessly handsome mm. in his uh, jeans and suit jacket. I'm like, that's the male uniform for a pitch. Like, you bastard. He's like, yeah. And then my two other female colleagues turned up and they had both chosen aggressive patterns. I'm like, right, this is what we do from now on. This is how we dress for it. So we don't have to agonise because we all had spent an hour looking at our wardrobes going, what the fuck do I wear for this? So decision-making energy, it's a big thing. Anyway, going going back to John Warner. Sorry. I'm I'm laughing. Uh, I I am laughing because in, in our household, there is a fair bit of time and effort goes into the consideration of what to wear to work. and But not for me. Like last night I just ordered four more black T-shirts. <laughs> like there you go. I didn't even try them on. <laughs> it's just like just send them to me. They'll be fine. <laughs> See, decision-making energy. You made one decision. Yeah. Takes away all those decisions. Yeah. Right. So basically he, he thinks that teaching uses up a lot of decision-making energy and he says, essentially I believe that during the semester – Teachers experience a steadily declining amount of physical and emotional bandwidth because of the sheer number of decisions one must make as a teacher, combined with the stakes, both real and perceived, of these decisions and the fact that almost all of these decisions must be made by the instructor acting alone. Yeah. And that I I don't teach by semester. Like I teach, the longest I'll teach is three days in a row, like a boot camp or something. Mm. And I know by the end of boot camp I'm absolutely shattered. But I do remember back when I used to teach a semester and just like the the crawling towards the finish line and it just really spoke to me, this thing, like, you know, you're having to make decisions about which assignments you're deciding as you present material, you get lots of queries where you have to make a decision, explaining assignments or, you know, changing things or whatever else it is. So I do remember this sort of decision-making. What, what do you think? Is it does that resonate with you? Yeah. I think this situation matters, right? Like I think if you're only teaching two semesters a year or one semester a year, then I, I, like, I can see how it would be like that. But I come from an institution where at one stage of the piece I was involved in coordinating and teaching nine different offerings of a course around the world. And we've talked about this in the past, right? Like the only days that we were not teaching strategic management somewhere in the world was Christmas Day and I think New Year's Day or something like that, I think. But other than that, we were like, we were just going all the time and there was no break. And so my response to that, which has led to much of kind of my own personal productivity stuff was to standardise everything that I could possibly standardise, you know, like text expander the lot as much as I possibly could, really think through what it was that I'm trying to do with my teaching and what the high-value activities are in the teaching. And then for everything else is just not cookie-cutter but take away as much cognitive load from it as I possibly could. 
So and decisions, right? Yeah. Like if you've if you're standardized, you don't have to make a decision how to write an announcement. You just text expander it out and change the date or whatever. Correct. And and as a kind of a self-preservation mechanism, that can that can work. The problem is, of course, where you're constantly teaching all the time, everywhere, etc. Then you, when you do go on leave, if you do take a week off, then you need to make sure that somebody else knows what your systems look like, or that you've automated them in advance, and that you don't have, you don't take leave at a critical point where where you have to make some creative decisions. So the things that really mattered uh, for all of these teachings was designing assessments, making sure rubrics were correct, you know, that kind of really creative work around that. But I would set up the announcements through Text Expander. I would pre-format lecture slides so that we used a very we used the same lecture slides for the concepts, theories, models, tools, frameworks, those sorts of stuff everywhere. Yeah. And then yeah. would only contextualize for location around some of the examples. And as a result of that, you never really suffer from this kind of declining decision fatigue towards the end of the semester because you're always at the start of another semester or in the middle of another semester somewhere else. Like because of the Yes, but also I think importantly you've reduced the problem that he's talking about and a lot of colleagues that I know, they don't do that. They're, they're working week to week or they're always tinkering, they're always changing things. Uh. They resist any sort of standardisation so I think what you've done there is actually recognise the problem that he's talking about and you've solved it. It's interesting, like, he compares the sort of teaching decision-making and other sorts. So he says, the concern and stress I feel over my non-teaching work is real but compartmentalizable. I have to meet my deadlines and be responsible to my editors and colleagues. I get busy, <laughs> but all of this is in my control. But because students are independent actors, the lack of control becomes a source of stress on its own. So he's sort of saying that the students throwing sort of queries at you and all that kind of thing and adjusting things on the fly and adding things and taking things away, which is what I see people do a lot actually, is exhausting. And he says it's exhausting in ways beyond the number of hours worked. I also think the scale is not strictly linear, that a four-by-four four load, I don't know what that's some sort of American thing, mm. is twice the emotional load of a two-by-two. Two. It's more logarithmic that for every additional course or student, you increase the potential of reaching an overload. As the overload is approached, the decision drains more bandwidth than it might have earlier in the semester. And so what I think you've done actually cleverly, as usual, is you've avoided that problem by just eliminating the decisions in advance that you can eliminate and concentrating on the things where you are genuinely adding value. I mean, how often does a student write to you some sort of query that you can't text expand to something out for them? Yeah. Like it must be rare. And I think if you have to, my personal trigger for this stuff, if I do something twice, there's a, like if I have to write something twice, there's a text expander snippet that, need, that is just begging to be written for this problem, <laughs> right? Right. Right. Like you just kind of well, go. That's the attitude I've got now. Yeah, that's me too. Yeah, yeah. because you, you go, you go. Oh crap! I'm going to face this again, and it took me a while to work my way through this particular thing. So I'm going to spend the time right now. I'm going to really think this through, kind of really, kind of make sure that I understand what the problem is, and come up with a solution to this problem once. And then yeah. you put it in text expander, and then when it comes around again, it's just you use your text expander snippet and you you bang it off, and you don't have to. You, you, that cognitive load of having to think that through has disappeared, literally disappeared. An example of this is 
recently had a whole bunch of students who were applying for extensions for their assessment. And my EOT, my extension of time snippet, just saved me hours and hours and hours of having to write individual responses to these students. Because you could just customise the length of time that you'd give them and that kind of thing. Yep, drop down boxes that said, yep, you can have an extension until this particular date and time, which is X number of days, or no, I'm not going to give you an extension and these are the reasons. And you go click, 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 click. You, uh, you know, choose the oh, right. a, okay. appropriate yeah. reason. And then, you know, you use optional inclusions. I've either I've adjusted your new due date in Canvas to take account of the fact that I've given you an extension or you can have another crack at, at applying for an extension, but you're going to need the following documentation or, or whatever it is, right? But it, it, right. it's a click, 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 send, don't think about it, move on to the next one. And I and I batch process all of my extension requests. So I sit down and I go, okay, right, I'm going to deal with extension requests in my email for the next two hours. And then I just, I just wow. deal with a lot. And then I get up and I walk away. Yeah, and that's another, I think that's another example of you eliminating decisions because you've decided I'm going to do this one class of activities yep. for the next two hours rather than do one and then decide what the next task is and then do that. I think a lot of fatigue and, and lack of focus in academic work is the decision-making about which task you're going to do if you're not time-blocking them and sequencing them in advance and batching them, the similar tasks together then you are making decisions, you know, every 10 minutes about which thing you're going to do next. Yeah, and I think John's, John? John. John Warner, yeah. John Warner, I think what he's doing here is he's he's talking about just, he's talking about teaching-related decisions and and what that is, but I think that you've nailed it. it. It might be that in the context of all the other decisions that he has to make as well and that that this is compounding. And but he's just landed on teaching related decisions as being the one that's the painful one. It's probably not. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's probably just like you keep pouring water into the jug until it overflows, and doesn't sort of matter what makes it overflow. It's just it's gone. Mm. You know. Mm. Yeah. So that was a that was a good article. I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, We're at one hour twenty <laughs> <laughs> before Snippety Judah. What have you been reading, thinking about? Uh, I got uh, my poisonous my what what's that phrase that we use algorithmically algorithmically poisoned, poisoned. <laughs> my algorithmically poisoned news feed on Twitter decided to throw up a, a Harvard Business Review article from 2019 entitled "Can AI Nudge?" But no, let me try that again. <laughs> <laughs> Can AI nudge us to make better choices? So uh, the reason that I stumbled over that is that. An AI nudge is an actual thing, right? So it's artificial intelligence nudging us. So the algorithms are nudging us to behave in a particular way. Oh, yes. Yes, right? So (laughs) there's a long conversation here, uh, ongoing conversation you and I are having around all of this sort of stuff and the tech bros and how artificial intelligence is probably going to lead us not down a path that's going to be all unicorn farts and sunshine, that it's a dystopian future <laughs> that, we're, we're, that we're facing here. Anyway, so this one particular article, and it, oh, my God, it triggered me. 
Like, but not in the not in the really bad way, but just like I, I got so ragey and shouty about the whole thing. I had to put my phone down and walk away. <laughs> like, I think it was, wow, really? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All right. So the crux of the article is that organisations are collecting more and more data about us, and that they're starting to use that information to manipulate us to act in certain ways, and that this is mostly done through gamification uh, and the use of rewards for behaviour that is desired by the organisation. Now. The, the article included examples by Uber, Amazon, Google, those sorts of folks, like Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, And you can, yeah. you know, like we know about all that sort of stuff, right? Uber, they're collecting ride data, acceptance rates, ride duration, GPS, all that sort of stuff. Amazon serves up Bujo stencil, <laughs> you know, like for me to... Damn you, Amazon <laughs> and your Bujo stencils. <laughs> yeah. All right, Cambridge Analytica for Facebook, all that sort of stuff, right? It's all the same yeah, same yeah. stuff, different colours. Mm. But these examples highlighted that the gamification process was heavily skewed towards the benefit of the organisation rather than to the benefit of the individual. So, Colour me surprised. I know, yes. right? So uh, gamified rewards for good driver feedback or ride rate for Uber drivers the the problem with that is if you get if you earn badges or reward tiers or 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 some other form of recognition for driving an Uber vehicle as an independent contractor without you know any benefits uh, in the way that Uber wants you to drive it that this might have unintended consequences. This is where I started to get kind of a little bit you know cranky. You can, yes. you can see how this kind of artificial intelligence manipulation could lead Uber drivers to work for longer, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, as they as they go and and they drink more of the Kool Aid and and they go, oh, I get you know, I go from gold level to platinum level, whatever that means. The little the little reward receptors in the brain spark and they feel good, and as a result, they drive for longer. And this could be problematic. You know, do you want someone on the road for 14 hours a day? Well, I mean, it's exactly the opposite from pilots flying planes. Like they're very strict about the number of hours Mm. that pilots can fly and all that kind of stuff. But you're actually much more likely to have a car accident than a plane accident. So that's just outrageous. I'm feeling ragey now. Yeah, I know, right? Like you can see. I had no idea they were doing shit like that. Well, I don't catch catch Ubers and now I feel smug that I (laughs) do. Well, you've got a car that drives itself, right? True. This is cool. I just call it. I just call it, and it comes out of its gate. No, not not quite, but yes. That's, that's so cool. It's so nineteen. It's so nineteen sixties Batman, right? <laughs> I know it is. It is. It is. You know the the, art, the authors argued that organisations don't need to be unethical about this, and that they thought that with some win win thinking, well designed gamified systems that leverage behavioural economics could benefit both organisations and employee. At which point, I. I stood up and went, I'm calling bullshit on this. <laughs> uh, and rightly so, Jason. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are some obvious concerns about what happens when you sign up to one of these organisations that uses this stuff, right? Like yes. what happens, for example, when your data that, that you've been handing over as part of the employee-employer relationship is acquired by some other big tech bro company? Right, like you've you've handed all this stuff on. You've entered into one relationship, but you now suddenly find yourself as part of another one. 
And let's be let's be honest. No, it's outrageous, and governments aren't doing enough to to regulate this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like that because data is kind of ephemeral, and you know they don't understand math or something. <laughs> Talking about politicians now, they're sort of like, oh, what ifs? And they, I mean, they're up to collecting plenty of it on their own as well. Oh let's yeah, be real. Oh yeah. One of the things that I that kind of really started to wind me up was that the article also forgot to mention that often people don't have a choice about whether or not they're involved in these kinds of mass surveillance systems. It's kind of one mm. thing to say that you can choose not to work for a company that engages in this kind of bullshit, right? But it's entirely something else when the only business that's growing in your area in the middle of a pandemic is Amazon and they're paying minimum wages and you don't have a job. Sure. You know, there's a price to price to play yeah. here as a, as, yeah. as a guess uh, as opposed to a price to pay. So, so this got me starting to think in a ragey kind of way. Let's imagine an Amazon worker is tracked in real time through her his or her wristband. Did you know that they had a patent for this stuff? The, no. Yeah, so. Oh, my God. Yeah, so you put this wristband on, right, and, the, and what it does is it pings, as you walk around the warehouse, it pings you to say that you're close to or further away from the article item thing that you need to pick. So, okay. yeah, so, and it, it not only tracks where you are GPS kind of style, but also where your hand is. So if, as you reach up, you're getting closer towards this thing, if you know what I mean, that you need to pick up. Yeah, yeah. So constantly yeah. the algorithm is, is telling you to walk this way, reach this way, do this thing. Right, so what happened? Like treating you like a robot, basically. Pretty much. Like a meat robot. Wow. Now, if you, if you step back from that, of course, what happens if the employee decides not to listen to the wristband kind of commands, right? Like let's say there's a spill on the floor or something like that and the employee decides, the wristband says turn right, the employee decides to turn left. This is monitored because, you know, Amazon, right? And they mm, they yeah. call them in to say, well, how come, you know, you should have gone this way and as a result of that an extra 15 seconds was added to something that you could, because Amazon's been well documented as using all of these kinds of stats to drive efficiency in their business, right? Yeah. Like this, I feel increasingly guilty about owning a Kindle. Go on. This could totally, to your point, like dehumanise the employee, I reckon. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. You know, the way in which the the employee, the agency that an employee has around the way in which they do their job is removed. And, yeah, you know, there's a whole yeah. bunch of organisational research that says that one of the things that you should do to have happy employees is give them autonomy about how they go about doing their job you know, allow them to be able to make these kinds of decisions. Anyway, this got me thinking and about particularly how I'm already subjected to this kind of behavioural manipulation and how I'm okay with some of it but not others. Yeah. But I think the thing that really kind of wound me up here was the technology element of this. So I'm okay with behavioural reward systems and incentive systems as long as I can control how I interact with them but once mm. you are subject to some other algorithm that is manipulating the way in which you go about doing that I feel less less content around that so one of the things that I did a little while ago now is I unsubscribed from that Microsoft email you know the one at the start of the week that says you know you use 
X amount of focus time and so many meetings and you should do this, that and something else in order. The shaming one that would come at the start of the week that would say you're spending too much time on email. Well, like, <laughs> yeah. you your email to organise your whole life. That shaming one, yeah, I, I'm familiar with it. So the Cortana kind of, I think it's called in Microsoft, isn't it? Yeah, I, I banished it from my brain. Yeah. I'm just like, go yeah. away. So I unsubscribed from that and clearly although couched in the idea that hey, Jason, maybe you should spend less time talking to people and more time doing your work. Management might argue that this is good for me, right? <laughs> like it means yeah, that yeah, I, can, yeah. I can do my job better and as a result, you know, get promotion, blah, 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 whatever, right? But the reality of that is that I make positive decisions about how I spend my day, very careful and thoughtful decisions about how I spend my day anyway. And that this these Cortana emails, these shaming emails are for the benefit of the organisation, not of me. And you only have to go back to October, November last year when universities shared all those jobs. It didn't matter whether or not you paid attention to Cortana or not and you were diligently following the advice of the Microsoft organisation. You could have just lost your job anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, lightning would strike. That was it, you were out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't matter, right? Like, Mm. oh, I'm getting Mm. angry. Anyway, on the other hand... Mm. On Friday, I spent about an hour thinking about how I can gamify the learning experience <laughs> for my students, right? Like, and uh, you know, like apparently that's fine. Like when I do it for someone else, it's okay. Oh, power and control. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. It's all about power and control. I wonder if Jeff Bezos has a wristband. Well, that was yeah. I'm like, I bet the I bet the executives don't have to do with this bullshit. <laughs> I, I bet they went. Yeah, no, they're not one. Other, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah, yeah. very true. And, and the thing that really wound me up was that because these are self-learning algorithms, that that they adjust for and they get better at extracting effort out of employees for the benefit of the organisation and that people who people who sign up to this sort of stuff start to, start to engage in kind of internalised capitalism. If if you know what I mean, so I've I've got yeah yeah I've got a, I've got an example, final little example around this sort of stuff, and then and then we should move on to our two minute tips. But there was a paper by Mark Mark I've forgotten Mark's last name. Forgive me, Mark. And I started tweeting him last night about it. It was around insurance companies and this product called Insurance Box. You could plug this little box into your car, and it would monitor how fast you drove, where you're driving, blah blah blah, all these kind of driving telematics. And the idea was that it would beam the stuff back to the insurance company and that the insurance company could then make adjustments to, say, insurance premiums based on, say, how safe a driver you were. You know, there's this kind oh, of... In- what? Yeah, so you might get rewarded with lower premiums if you drive in a safe manner in a safe neighbourhood, just as you might get penalised when you're driving off-road through some tricky terrain, right? Now, I like I started thinking about that and if people are really interested in lowering their insurance premiums, which would, and then, you know, that promotes, if you like, safe, in inverted commas, as defined by insurance company, star, asterisk, driving, that some people might never choose to take the off-road option, you know? So if I've got one of these things in my Jeep, I might decide just to stay on the M1 rather than finding some really interesting roads to go that are, uh, you know, 
off-road, if you like, and in interesting space. Well, you're meant to have a Jeep for Yeah, that's right. Really, I mean, why own one if you're not going to do that? Yeah, this kind of internalised capitalism is detrimental to people who want to live their life to the fullest capacity, enjoying all the non-monetary rewards of doing things in remote locations. Get out there, drive your Jeep like you're supposed to. Don't listen to the algorithm. <laughs> anyway, how can the- that was. That was Mark Stevenson who wrote Mark that Stevenson, article. Professor Mark Stevenson yes. from Melbourne, Stevenson. Melbourne University. I tweeted him asking for a follow-up because the, the article that, that, they, that he wrote with his colleagues was a, a study protocol saying we want to look at these things and, and they gave kind of all the details about how they're going to study this thing. But they're just in the process of writing the outcomes of that. And I want to come back to it because I'm, I'm really interested uh, to see what they found because between the time that they wrote this article, this little black box was called Insurance Box, and it was a product offered through QBE Insurance. It's amazing what you can find on the uh, internet. Yeah. Turns out the QBE discontinued this particular product in 2018, I think. Interesting. Yeah, and, Interesting. I, and I'm kind of like, ooh, I wonder why. <laughs> and I, I'm, oh, that'd be good. Well, we'll look forward to that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab. Speaking of driving, I'm gonna grab the wheel. Right. Take us into our two minute territory. Good. I've got two quick ones. Right. Okay, so I think a while back we were talking about OmniFocus versus Bullet Journal and I was saying that the only downside of the Bullet Journal is that you can lose it and that it fell out of my bag when I was riding my bike. So I've been starting to use collections to manage my projects and very simply now I just take a photo of the collection and I pop it in the OmniFocus item and I just regularly update it when I change the collection or migrate it. So I kind of always have a, you know, a backup. Right. And I think this has solved the one thing about the Bujo that I was really worried about, which was my collections holding a lot of, you know, discussion, things I had discussions about and that kind of thing. Mm. So so I'm quite happy with that. Hang on. Can I suddenly realised, yeah. I, I, I confess I don't understand this one. I, I tried to picture it from the show notes and I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. So you've got a collection, you, you get to the, like you keep migrating your collection so you've got this kind of consolidated view of, of this project. and that- Yeah, the outstanding items that need to be done, basically. They might break down into further tasks. Yeah. There'll be things like write a COVID impact report. Right. Or produce marketing collateral or something like that. It'll all be on one page. It'll be a list. Like yeah. my post-act project, for instance, has about 20 things that, that are in progress or being done or whatever, and they've got names next to who's doing it and blah. That's in my bujo. Right. So you- and so I then I just have a task in OmniFocus that yeah. says post-act progress. Yeah. And I take a photo of the collection every time I migrate it. And so then I've got a kind of up-to-date version of what's in my Bujo and it's just got the same name. So if I lose my Bujo, it's just there. It's peace of mind. Right. So the photo's attached And I say to what page. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which I don't do very often. I often have word files and things attached to tasks. I hadn't really thought to attach photos, but it works quite well. Oh, Okay. So the other thing is, it's a mea culpa to my dear, dear friend, Nick Hill, whose birthday I forgot last week. Sorry, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) So Nick listens to the podcast. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Nick and James live in London. They're two of my dearest friends. I've been friends for 30 years with James, and I nearly forgot his 50th birthday. Oh, no. Because as it turns out, Nick... I had migrated my uh, all my birthday dates from one calendar to another, 
which was fine, except for some reason when I migrated, they didn't have recurring ticked on them. So I remembered everything fine last year. Yeah. And this year, so why do I keep forgetting everyone's birthdays? Oh. Anyway, so my top tip is, you know, every time someone tells you it's their birthday or something, you just like quickly make a note of it. Yeah. And make sure you tick them. Just make sure you tick them. Tick. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Love you, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> he said it. He said it totally like he's like, what credibility do you have to do this podcast? <laughs> Fair call, Nick. Fair call, my friend. Uh, yeah, that's it. That, yeah, they're good. Like, yeah. Uh, this, yeah. The, the split between Bujo and OmniFocus, right? I think we still have to. It's, it's it, it hasn't quite kind of gelled perfectly for me yet either. I think there's there's work for us to do in that in that space. Mine's super quick, and uh, I've been doing this for years, and I didn't realize how how awesome it was until it worked in a really obvious way. So I copy and paste stuff from the internet all the time and usually if you do that it can end up with some really funky kind of formatting issues right if you go straight from the internet into a word document or some stuff like that i have this extra extra step where i copy from the from the web page paste it into a plain text version of the text edit uh, software on the mac oh yeah, 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 so you start at the start of the day. I'll have a, a new document, text edit document, set to plain text formatting. And, oh. and what I do is I copy, paste it into that thing, it strips all the formatting out of it. And then I copy that text and place that text where I want it to go. So it's kind Brilliant. of, I add an extra step into getting it from the internet into Word, for example. And but it just and then you can just format it any way that you want, and no one will ever know the difference, which is kind of kind of good for email sometimes as well, maybe. Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. All, all sorts of things like cutting out of a PDF yep. quote or something. Yeah, yeah, fantastic idea. There's probably heaps I'm of adding that one. Probably yeah. heaps of apps that do this kind of automatically. But uh, and if anyone's got any. Uh, ideas or, or can point us in the directions of apps that will do this without me having to go through this multi-step process. I'm all ears, maybe on the uh, speak pipe. Mac only. Yeah, definitely on the speak. Mac only, though, please, people. We don't do Windows. No, we're not. We're not a Windows shop here at On the Reg. Right, I'm going to pull us in, Jason. Hey, I've done <laughs> at one hour, forty-one minutes and fifteen seconds. Thanks for listening all this way, uh, Jason. We love reviews, don't we? We love them. Oh, my God. If you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps people find us. And, of course, we read every one of them. Be like Chad. Use SpeakPipe. Uh-huh. What's How do we get to SpeakPipe, Jason? Uh, we go to www.speakpipe.com slash thesis whisperer. Yes, we'd love to hear from you, yes. And you can we can hear your voice then, which would be nice. It's lovely, isn't it? It makes it feel warm and fuzzy inside. We really <laughs> enjoy that. Or... Tell someone to uh, to listen to our podcast and just skip the first 20 minutes so we just crap on about what we did and stuff. No, that's the best <laughs> bit. That's the best bit. I reckon it's the best bit. I'm never dropping it. <laughs> I went out to lunch with <laughs> I went out to lunch with someone uh, last week and they said that they'd listened to a few episodes of the podcast and they, they told us that we were particularly nerdy. And I and I'm not sure whether or not they were, were telling us that, uh, like positively or negatively. But I like, I just, I just embraced it, right? And I'm like, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And I'm like, well, leave us some reviews. Come on, get on with it, right? Like, like, 
I did, I, Are you a true friend? A true friend would leave a review. Yeah. Talking to you, Nick. Talking to you, Nick. All right, where can people find you on the web, Jason? Uh, mostly on Twitter uh, and you can find me at Jason Downs. And you, Inga? And you'll find me at Thesis Whisperer tweeting the latest books from my to-be-read pile to Jason. <laughs> so that's a thing you can watch. Thanks, Jason. It's been real. Thanks, Inga.